you're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Dalton Elliott. I'm joined today by the second most handsome guy at Lean One Capital. I'll let you guess who the most handsome guy is. Uh, our CEO, Jeff Tennyson, is uh, climbing mountains in South America right now. He's the third most handsome. Uh, but if he were here, I would say he's the first most handsome. So office politics at its finest. Josh, our, uh, our wonderful chief financial officer. How are you today, sir? I'm, I'm good, Dalton. It's clear you know who pays for this podcast. <laughs> bingo, bingo. <laughs> Better or worse. Uh, so, no, you're the most handsome. You're dashing. I love love that hair. Chris White shirt. Can't get better than that. Uh, so, give us give us some background. You're uh, your CFO. You you truly, you know, I, I've been here close to eight years. Uh, you, uh, in in terms of tenure, you've been here longer. But I, I for some reason, I'm taken back to one of the first big conferences we went to, and you were on stage with a bunch of other CEOs and CFOs, and I think you're uh, ten or twenty years younger than most of the folks in your seat. So truly, uh, you know, impressive. You've you've led the firm through uh, so much growth, through also some, you know, I don't know if we call it, you know, a little bit of crisis, right? When COVID hit, capital markets dried up. Um, you know, you kept the the ship running from a numbers perspective, which is the, the most important perspective. So, uh, you, you know, you really are one of the trailblazers in the space. But give us some background on how you got to where you are in the CFO role. Yeah, sure. I started in banking and mortgage finance literally when I was in high school. I know it still looks like I'm in high school, but I, I actually started in this sort of general space. Uh, that long ago. And so I was at Bank of America about 11 years ago. And then I moved here to Lima One. And then I'm telling you, it's been an incredible ride. It's funny because you sort of forget like how things were. And, you know, certainly the industry's evolved and there's a lot more sort of availability of financing for our business, which has allowed us to provide more financing to clients. But it's just been tremendous to see not only product expansion, but geographic expansion, and just really proud of the solutions we've been able to build. You know, we've obviously been fortunate to hire some really great people and uh, build a great company along the way. And so, you know, this has been a little bumpy last year and obviously 2020. But, you know, if you build a company that's nimble and can sort of adapt to any circumstance, then you're going to be able to navigate even difficult waters. And so that, that's really what we feel like we've done. And, you know, that's why we feel like no matter what happens in the future, we don't have to predict the future. We just have to make sure that we do the little things well and, and we'll be in a really good position to help grow our business and help our clients be successful along the way. Yeah, really well said. And as we look at 2023, you know, 2020, you had COVID, we, uh, we as a space and us as a company, you know, a couple months of, uh, you know, as, as capital markets were frozen, uh, doing minimal lending. And then we came back with a vengeance and, and did you know, produce way more than we anticipated, even if you take COVID out. 2021, spectacular year for us, record year. Uh, but, you know, rates went up. That was the big, uh, big theme of 2022. Uh, if you could kind of read the tea leaves, what do you think the big story of 2023 is going to be? So it's an interesting question. <laughs> it's one that I know, I've wrestled with as long as, as well as my, my peers and colleagues here. 
to let's just take and, and look at what what the experts say, right? Like, you know, I, I slept at the Holiday Inn Express <laughs> of Greenville last night. So we'll, we'll just take a, a survey of you know, what most of the researchers and economic forecasters are predicting. And what the general consensus is, is what I would describe as okay <laughs> to potentially, uh, you know, slightly negative. Now, this is purely from just a housing market perspective. And I draw that distinction importantly, because then if you look a little bit sort of broader, like the total industry projections, and I see a lot more negativity, honestly, you know, you hear a lot more, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60% chance of recession. And so I do think that's a little incongruous. And it does make me wonder, like, if maybe we're being a little bit too optimistic with respect to housing industry uh, viewpoints, you know, but look like these things, if we look back to where we started 2022 and interest rates, for example, I think most people recognize that the quantitative easing of 2020 had come home to roost and we needed to figure out ways to get inflation under control. And so, People knew rates were going to go up. They knew the Fed was going to get involved, knew the Fed was going to tighten. But I think people thought, well, maybe it's you know, 150, 300 basis points of, of tightening of, of Fed funds increase. And it was about 400. And it was probably much quicker than people anticipated. So the pace is really breathtaking. And so I, I guess to sort of answer your question directly, while I say I, I think things are going to be sort of okay overall from housing, market standpoint i should don't think we should underestimate sort of the firmness and fastness with which we can be wrong and so there's a wide range of outcomes and while the average i think of those outcomes is is pretty fine there there's certainly some tales that we should be cautious about and keep in mind yeah that's a really good kind of box and whiskers plot reading of the tea leaves for it and, and I, it feels like one of the more honest answers i've gotten is I, I ask folks in the space like, like what do you think and uh yeah i think one thing though that i keep going back to is you know when you look at housing you have a lot of headwinds but in my mind one of the stronger pieces is that you still have a true inventory issue right like we when you look at the great uh the financial crash, right? 07, 08, we were overbuilding and then building just dropped off the edge of the cliff, right? And and it never, up through COVID, it never got back to kind of a normal healthy level, which means we still have a big deficit, you know, millions of millions of homes uh, of a deficit for where we really need to be to have kind of a normalized housing economy. Uh, how big of a role do you think that's going to play in keeping the bottom from falling out in housing when you look at the kind of scenarios that are more in the worst case bucket? So I actually have a little bit of a perhaps contrarian viewpoint there. Okay. This is fun, right? We're going to have a, have a discussion. So, and, and I've said this a lot too, because what you're alluding to is exactly right. There was this extreme, like, sort of underbuilding, you know, the, the houses constructed versus the new households being formed. And I've heard anywhere, and in fact, I've said anywhere from like four to six million units short of housing. So let's just call it a five million uh, unit housing shortage. But then I think about that. And I say, okay, well, there's you know over 300 million people in this country. There's a little over 100 million households in this country. So you know, call it you know five percent of households uh, short. 
But then I also say to myself, it's like, wait a second, you know, we're, we're trending towards having less than a million existing homes for sale. And we're saying, wait, the, we actually need, you know, another 4 million on top of that. And what I struggle to reconcile sometimes, like, okay, well, if we had 5 million homes today available for sale, like, would those really get absorbed? Or, or even if it was just rental units incrementally? I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I guess what I'm really saying is I think there's some sort of like natural, it's, it's almost like unemployment. You know, you'll never have 100% employment. So you'll never have like that, that quote unquote shortage completely filled. Um, but, but with all that being said, I mean, it's still a fundamental supply versus demand problem. And that problem, I, yeah, I would say in 2007, 2008, whatever, like it was clearly like oversupply relative to demand. I don't see that being the same case here. And I know that's not necessarily a novel concept, but think, think about like any given market, right? Like there's certainly a multitude of factors that you have to consider. Like what's the net migration into that market? What What's the absolute amount of housing transactions, housing demand units that people desire in that market? Well, that's going to ultimately drive housing price in that market. And that demand is also going to be linked to things like interest rates, specifically purchase mortgage interest rates. And so I, I think it's almost like too simple to say that, like, you know, housing market is, is going to just be good because there's there's plenty of demand and there's not enough supply. Well, well, both of those things could be true. But if they're they're true in different places and one market has oversupply, like, you know, a lot of California markets, a lot of higher end markets, like there's oversupply there. And so they're seeing. Uh, decline in prices where other markets where there's there's net inflow, uh, you know, the opposite is true. And there's still not enough houses for people to, to buy or rent. So I, I'll probably get into a little bit more, but I think that also speaks to like how you think about next year and how you sort of like take advantage of what opportunities do present themselves in today's conditions, which is a lot about playing into that like belly of the curve versus, you know, going after sort of, you know, the, I'll say the fringier elements of uh, of the housing market. And, I, and I'll define what I mean by fringier a little bit later too. But anyway, so I, I wax poetic a little bit there, but hopefully that answers your question. No, I like it. It is a different uh, different view outlined than other folks I've spoken with on the podcast. And you mentioned kind of rates. Um, let's let's unpack rates and fees a little bit, right? Because the the rate increase pain of 2022 is going to persist into 2023, right? It's it's uh, that's the best best guess is that we're going to continue to go up a little bit. You know what? How much further up do you see us going, and what impact do you think that's going to have uh, on kind of production and availability in this space? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so I'll separate what I'll say are sort of financing rates to to borrowers, whether that's investor borrowers or owner occupant borrowers, versus like the cost of lenders to run their businesses, their cost of funds to go out and lend. So let's tackle that one first. So most of that is going to be driven by Fed funds, target rates, and what effectively banks are borrowing from each other at. Because whether you're a bank directly lending your own funds, whether you're a REIT, whether you're a hedge fund, even whether you're just raising capital independently, like, your cost of capital is going to start with that risk-free rate. So you can find that as treasury, you can find that as swaps, but 
you know, there's that level that with virtually no risk, the risk of the U.S. government, you can borrow. And so, like, let's take two-year treasuries. That's been sort of right around 4%. It's a little closer to four and a quarter right now. We'll see how that changes every year. But, like, let's just say that it stays in this, like, call it four to four and a half percent band. And I'm not saying that it will yet, but, like, let's just ride with that assumption for a moment. Well, the thing that I don't think people are appreciating enough is that that's really just a starting point because, like, even if the Fed stops raising rates, which we know they're not, I think the forecast is like five to five and a half percent Fed funds rate. Well, there's still going to be what's called a credit spread on top of that, which is to say, like, even if the risk free rates are four percent or four and a quarter or four and a half, well, you know, when I go out and make a real estate loan, like, that's not a risk free loan. So my cost of financing to go make that loan is going to be higher. And so what could actually happen and, and what I think will probably happen soon, we'll see, we'll see some like flattening or at least slowing down of those risk rate increases. Again, remember, you know, we started 2022 and it was basically zero. And now those risk rates are, you know, in the 400 to 450 basis point range. So that's a precipitous increase. But what we, I don't think of fully appreciating is how much incremental cost has been added because of this sort of perception of extra risk in the housing market today, particularly, but in other industries as well. You know, we talked earlier about like recession forecasts. And so like, you know, none of us, none of us business operators get to borrow at that risk-free cost. And so then we have to say, well, <laughs> what risk is being prescribed to the businesses that we're running? And so for me, this, I promise I'm, I'm going somewhere. So it really wraps back around to like, what do we think house prices are going to do? And what do we think that market is going to look like, at least specific to our business and real estate lending. And so if you look at those forecasts, you know, you've got anywhere from five to 10% up in house prices to five to 10% down in house prices. But again, there's a huge range of outcomes. And so like, if on average, we're at, you know, 0% home prices are flat this year, that that's okay. And that probably won't cause us to incur a higher risk premium to our borrowing. But what is really important is to note is like if you start seeing delinquencies move and we start seeing delinquencies trend up, like that's going to keep the cost of funds elevated. So, you know, I'll I'll spare any more sort of like technical rates discussion for now. But like truly just that there's the risk free, the Fed's fund that everybody sees and hears about. That's probably going up again another you know 100 basis points. Uh, at least, but then there's also this risk premium, which, which could also come in. Like we could also say, like, hey, things are performing; we don't have really any issues. The rates are going up, so you know, you could have the Fed funds rates go up, the credit spreads come down, and, and we're flat on rates by the end of the year. For, so again, so rates for for us to borrow, for lenders, for financiers to borrow, but then that will ultimately translate to cost of capital for for borrowers as well, and you know that'll get passed through almost one for one. You touched on delinquency, and I know for any lender, uh, that's a massive part of the business, right? Like managing uh, delinquencies, loans that you take back, properties you take back. How how have you know what's the trend been in delinquencies uh, recently? And do you do you have any thoughts on or any predictions for this year? Do you think there's going to be kind of a flood of foreclosures? Uh, what do you what do you think? Yeah, I'll be honest. I'm not sure. I've seen sort of mixed ad on it. I've seen 
you know, commercial side, your classic, you know, retail is is struggling a bit more, kind of seven, eight, ten percent delinquency. By the way, it's important to define like what delinquency is. It sixty days past due is a you know, in foreclosure, especially service. But like, you know, I, I'll just say kind of sixty day past due rates. It took all the way up, of course, through special servicing foreclosure. Um, I haven't seen as much distress in housing, like in terms of those delinquency metrics, at least not in what I've seen in the NBA uh, production information. But like, it, you know, there has been more murmuring about more foreclosures coming through. So, you know, perhaps that's a canary in the coal mine on the, uh, I guess, business purpose lending space specifically. Yeah, I mean, there there really hasn't been any, you know, maybe that is also a testament to just the operators in this space and how quickly they're able to adjust and, you know, understand what's going on locally and, you know, adjust their business model accordingly. As we're going forward, I'll, I'll tie it right back into home prices, but not just like the pure number, right? Because, you know, we could have 0% home price appreciation next year, but, you know, if you have down 20% in the first six months and 20% up in the, the last six months, like you're still at 0% on average, but that's obviously a big difference uh, in scenarios versus just a flat 0%. So I think the timing and the pace of house price changes is really important. Again, in this sort of business purpose lending, construction, rehab lending, value add lending space, that's going to really tell the tale of how well our operators are able to to navigate and, and again adjust their business models. I will just note on inflation, you know, these things aren't free, right? Like, you know, we, we sort of seem like it's some just thing happening, but like it's really increasing the costs of projects and it's really making the numbers harder, right? All the inputs, labor, materials, those have gone up. Because those have gone up, it, it's harder to make the numbers work. And so you know, I think there's some other reasons that you're seeing investor purchases decline by 30%. It's not just purely a function of rates going up and that cost increasing, but literally just the projects themselves don't make as much sense as they did a year ago. Yeah, yeah, especially on the short-term side of the fence and even rates up and rents have continued to grow. But, you know, I think I've seen the estimates on uh, rent rate increases for 2023 have pulled back some, you know, uh, thinking back even three, four months ago, I think estimates were six, 7%. You would see some wild estimates at 10%, but it seems like most of them were at six, 7%. And now it's pulled back to kind of the three, 4% range, which is you know, healthy, nothing to, nothing to scoff at, but certainly a, you know, a normalization and a pulling back from, from the last couple of years where you just had insane rent rate increases. Well, yeah, no, I, and it's in a lot of ways, my, my personal view is that that's super healthy. I mean, we, we need that. Like, it, it's unsustainable. Affordability is at a fever pitch, not even just for you know, buying houses, but renting houses as well. And so, again, back to the supply demand, like, there's only so much demand when you've got to pay 35, 40% of your income to be able to, to buy a house or rent a house. Um, but, but the rent is an important. Point two, I, I think that's going to be especially tied into what happens with unemployment. You know, un unemployment, it, it's, it's been very strong, right? In that, like, we're almost at full employment and we, and we just haven't really seen that 
retrace it all. And, you know, there's been some more like tech, you started to hear a little bit more tech, Silicon Valley, those, those types of layoffs. I think that's going to be key as well, especially with respect to the, the rental business and, and how that functions going forward. Um, you know, to some extent, the Fed's told us that for inflation to really come down and get kind of closer to that 2% target, I mean, right, like we're at 7% now, you know, for us to get closer to 2%, like unemployment has to go up like that just, I mean, it's counterintuitive in some ways, but like, I just don't see a world where that, uh, where those two things can be true that you're at, you know, a 2% or 2% inflation rate and unemployment uh, is still at three and a half percent, right? Like that's just mathematically difficult. And so when that unemployment does start to creep up, I think, you know, consensus estimates are somewhere in the 5% range. Like how, I mean, 2% doesn't sound like a lot, but when you really think about the magnitude of that, like I do have concerns that could cause some ripple effects in, in both owner-occupied and rental housing. And so that's something that I'm keeping an eye on as well. Yeah, I was uh, reading last night uh, just some estimates and, and guesses about, you know, knowing that unemployment has to rise and normalize. And you and I were talking before this started that, um, you know, yeah, you, you were probably introduced to this concept at the same time I was, which was early on in college and economics classes that 0% unemployment is not healthy, right? Because then there's no mobility. You know, go down the line. We could talk about Adam Smith and everybody else, but we'll save that for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, you, may, you might have people unsubscribing as, as we speak on that one. Precipitous unsubscribing. <laughs> uh, it'll be it'll be just like the unemployment rate. Just <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I know, I know. I might be killing subscribers myself here, but you know, we'll, we'll keep trying. But yeah, that that. Three, four, five percent rate, and one thing that I found interesting is, is I saw a lot of talk about uh, who it hits being different, right? You mentioned tech layoffs. You've seen, you know, it hitting higher-paying jobs. Whenever you look back to oh seven oh eight, you had uh, you had finance just demolished, right? That more so than any other space, uh, and then you had kind of the retail, more of the frontline workers being laid off. Uh, Looking at estimates for this year, and, you know, as we know that most likely unemployment is going to tick up and that's healthy, uh, the consensus I was reading was that white collar workers are going to be, and that's, you know, that's a term that was used, white collar workers, the the, more... Are you just making fun of me because I literally have a white collar on? I'm, I'm literally wearing a white collar. Is that what this is about? I have some news for you, Josh. I, I uh, I'm gonna be okay. <laughs> you, you on the other hand, I'm uh, for anybody listening. I have a green collar on. Josh has a white collar on. I'll let that goes conversation wide. But my prospects are looking good. Uh, no, it's interesting that that's that's what is going to be hit, and the some of the logic behind it was that. You know, the shortage you've had and for our operators, uh, you know, partners in the space, so the folks who are, uh, you know, working with us on the fix and flip, new construction, multifamily, rental fronts, you know, they've had the last couple of years a really tough time with labor, not only finding labor, uh, but the compensation has gone up. 
Uh, and so that cuts into margins. But, you know, uh, what I've read and how it seems to tie into our space is that, uh, you know, the, the manual labor jobs and, you know, the more blue collar jobs, uh, employers are really going to try to hang on to those folks, knowing how hard it has been to fill those spots uh, and that those jobs are generally like, like you can't you can't shift over that work to somebody else and have the same outcome, right? You need, you need boots on the ground to, to build homes, to fix up uh, and seeing that potentially the hits are going to be more in the white collar side of the fence. So how do you think from uh, from an operator standpoint, when I try to put myself in their shoes, you know, a lot of the homes, you know, our, our average uh, loan and then after repair value so the actual average sales price for a property that we lend on is probably what somewhere in the three to five hundred range. That's probably the band. How do you think that that the creeping up unemployment is going to affect operators, like the average operator in this space for a new construction or rehab project? Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating dynamic between the white collar <laughs> and, and uh, I'll say more of the uh, blue collar workforce. I don't see a lot of changing of demand for construction without material con continued sustained high interest rates. And, and the reason is like, I mean, we've seen it, right? Like in our lending practice, like construction costs had come in some, like material costs had come in some, but I mean, labor remains stubborn. And so just as long as there are houses that need to be built, at least the current levels, then, you know, there's not today more people coming into that workforce. So I think there's a big time supply, labor supply constraint with respect to construction. And that goes back to the math equation I was talking about earlier, where you know, if you're an operator and you're trying to do a project, like the numbers just get tighter and tighter because you're paying 10, 15, 20 percent more for labor. You know, maybe materials are only 10 percent more, but that starts to add up. Oh, by the way, now, like in your model, you've got to say, well, you know, I, I think the house is worth 400,000, but, you know, maybe it's only worth 350 or 300 because of factors that I can't necessarily control. So that's why one of the several reasons why I think you see investor purchases of real estate going down. I think Adam put out a, a statistic that said it was 30%. Investor purchases are down 30%. That's where you really see it manifest. And then a little bit maybe of a knock on, but with respect to like the, the higher paying jobs, white collar jobs, at, as or if those do go away, I think it really challenges, I'll call it sort of the luxury or higher end market. And we're already seeing some of this where luxury home prices are going down at a pretty rapid clip, 20 to 30% in some markets. So I talked about like fringier places earlier where maybe you want to be a little bit more cautious. Like if you're a luxury spec builder right now, like that's a place where you've got to put even more cushion in your model uh, for labor and materials, but then also some of those potential home price decreases. And, and of course it's all local and every project specific, but I'm, we're speaking in, I guess, broad generalizations here. So I, I think that surveys and, and addresses some of the questions and issues you brought up. But, you know, there's unfortunately no real easy solution or one straight answer to it. I think it's just a combination of factors that have to be evaluated on each deal. 
For sure. Yeah. Super local. And we, we were, you and I were in credit review committee yesterday and the Austin market came up and, you know, that's a market that had the most, um, at least from a headline perspective, the most notable market in terms of growth the last couple of years, you know, 35 or so percent growth, which is just absolutely wild. And, and subsequently, that market is seeing one of the more precipitous uh, normalizations, I guess I would call it. I struggle to call it a, a drop off because, you know, the the levels that it, it seems like it's going to normalize to or level off to still outpaces what normal appreciation would have been the last couple of years. So I think you have to take a global perspective when you look at housing and say, sure, housing, some markets are going to come back and cool off. But uh, even if you see a little bit of uh, negative growth there, uh, if you look at a 24 or 36 month window, uh, still well above where you would normally expect home prices to appreciate over those few years. So I think that's something super important to keep in mind as well. Uh, but as we, hundred percent, yeah, and as as we look to wrap up, what else is on your radar for this year for operators from a lending perspective? Any markets that excite you? I'll just open it up to you. What's what's kicking around in the brain? <laughs> How much time you got? I mean, that, that, that could take a while. No, I, I, I'll put it this way. I, I don't, it's hard to paint with a broad brush. I, you, you get this question a good bit about like, what markets are good? What markets are bad? So like, of course, you, you can look and say, all right, well, there's certain states, Texas, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, like math, mathematically, dependably, they have net migration. Okay. So Theoretically, more demand for housing, <laughs> not even theoretically, actually, more demand for housing. There's other states, New York, California, Massachusetts, net uh, departure, so less demand. So, I mean, again, if you're trying to just paint with a broad brush and say, like, you know, what are the places where I want more or less exposure to housing? Like, those are probably some states that you would want to pay attention to. But the reality is, like, very few of us operate at like a state level or even a, a MSA or city level, right? Like we're dealing in neighborhoods, and zip codes and things like that. And so, I mean, the way I think about it, you know, if I'm buying a house, like the the potential change in pricing for that market is a, is a factor. But what's more of a factor is, am I buying it right? What are my inputs on materials and labor? What are the immediate comps in that area? What have they looked like over the last, you know, six to 12 months? And so I mentioned earlier, like kind of fringier products and projects. I think there's just certain projects that it's harder to line up all those variables. I mean, build the rents one that, I mean, when it works, it's great, but it's just hard to get all the stars to align. Uh, Cause you got to buy the land, right. And you got to make sure you, you got the demand there in terms of, net new real demand you're not just competing against sort of the apartment complex you're also competing against the option to buy and so you gotta you know kind of strike that balance between being affordable enough that like you're better off renting but you know making sure that you can kind of hit your operational numbers uh you know i talk about luxury like that that those can be home runs and you know those can also be really hard houses to sell that take a long time but so for me, as you know, I put my investor hat on or put myself in the shoes of our clients, I think about like, 
how do I do projects that are just like right in the belly of the curve, right? Those, you know, available for a single first time home buyer all the way to the, you know, person who's downsizing that just gives you sort of up and downstream receptivity. Uh, and again, that price point will be different for each market, but, you know, we're, we're really talking about sort of the central infill type development housing that makes this in the highest demand, right? Again, it's in that belly of the curve. And then on the rental side, that would be more of like your class B apartment complexes. I mean, I really like, you know, taking a class C, doing value add. Not only does that create more better units, but, you know, you've got your your class A tenants who, you know, let's say they lose their job or they take a pay cut or whatever, like they can always come down. And then that class B is really where, you know, kind of 60 to 70% of the demand is anyways. And so I, I just think those are the places that you really want to target as an investor and as a lender and really as anyone who's trying to uh, put some chips out in the in the housing market. Yeah, not not the time, or at least it doesn't seem like now's the time to be real risky and frisky, right? Like crunch numbers <laughs> a little more deeply, have uh, have more conservative estimates, know that was it past performance is not indicative of future. <laughs> yeah. well, what do they say? Fortune favors the bold. Yeah, I mean that might be true, but I, I would suggest that now is a good time to make sure you got just a little extra margin in your deals. You're buying it even more right than before. You're really making sure that you got some excess spread between your costs and your expected sales price, and also you got extra liquidity because I do. We didn't talk a lot about time to sell, but you know, we are starting to see time to sell stretch. So, you know, it's not just that you only have five potential buyers instead of 10. It's taken, you know, 100 days to sell instead of 60. And so that's something that is also important to be cognizant of. Yeah, really good call out. Um, as you know, I may be the most handsome person in the company, but I think <laughs> you're the smartest person in the company. So we could uh, we could sit here all day and I have a million questions uh, but thank you for carving out some time and, and chatting with me through this. I really, really appreciate it. And I I, I always benefit greatly listening to you and, and uh, going back and forth, picking your brain. And I, I certainly know the audience will as well. So thank you very much, Josh. I really appreciate it. Well, I love it. I appreciate you. I, thanks, everybody, for listening and uh, really enjoyed being on today. So we'll talk again soon. Beautiful. Thanks again, everybody. Take care. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry, bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best 
while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show. 